What is the difference between active and passive investing and why might doctors choose one style over the other? What is financial planning and how does the financial planning process work? And what is the role of financial advisors in all of this? On today's podcast, we're going to discuss this and more. And hopefully this will help you understand a bit more about what financial advice is and what they do. Don't forget, if you're enjoying these podcasts, to leave us a rating and a review. That really helps us. And if you've got a question that you want to ask us, just send us a voice memo to team at medicsmoney.co.uk and we'll do our best to answer it for you. The Medics Money podcast helps doctors, dentists and other professionals make better financial decisions. Hosted by myself, Dr. Tommy Perkins, a GP. And by me, Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and chartered tax advisor. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute any form of advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. So on today's Medics Money podcast, I'm delighted to welcome Dennis Hall from Yellowtail Financial Planning. Hi, Dennis. Hi, how are you, Tommy? I'm good. So do you want to introduce yourself to the Medics Money podcast listeners and tell us a bit about why you're qualified to talk about today's subject? So, yeah, I'm the owner and managing director of a small niche firm of financial planners called Yellowtail Financial Planning. There are two advisors here, myself and a colleague, Mushtak. And Mushtak really is the guy that anyone would probably be talking to because he's the in-house expert on the NHS pension schemes. And he deals with quite a lot of people on the medical and dental side. I'm, as I was probably saying earlier, more like a psychiatrist. I can handle people's dysfunctions around money, but pensions are not hugely exciting for me. Yeah, pensions are not hugely exciting, I would agree. And the psychology of how people think about their finances is definitely fascinating. There's a lot of psychology involved in financial planning. So hopefully we'll get into that a bit. But you've recently joined us on Medics Money. And as everybody knows, we only work with independent specialist financial advisors that specialize in the medical profession. So why, in your opinion, is it important that people use a financial advisor that specializes in the profession? I think you could probably link that to an analogy is like the medical world, is that there are a lot of GPs out there that can handle most everyday things. But when there's a problem that arises or a complex area. And I think we can all agree that NHS pensions are a very complicated area. And the way that people build up their benefits, changing from previous schemes to career average schemes, and how all of this works is that you need to go to someone who's got more than the equivalent of an A-level in ISAs, which is probably where a lot of financial advisors sit. So as I say, my colleague Mushtak has probably spent the last 15, 16 years working predominantly with people in the medical and dental field. And a lot of that work is around NHS pensions. And we've just uncovered horror stories as we've been going along of people that have either done their own research, a bit of Googling for an hour about pensions and making decisions, or they've gone to somebody who isn't really competent in the area of NHS pensions. And they end up buying other pension schemes to sit alongside it which do them great harm, or they end up paying tax that they don't need to pay because people are not understanding how the tax system works with NHS pensions. Yeah, it is kind of scary that, as you say, you can just do the diploma in financial advice, and then you could call yourself a specialist medical financial advisor and actually have no real specialism. But there isn't a kind of agreed benchmark, which is kind of why we started Medics Money. 
I don't want to go into the technical stuff too early, but just, you know, when someone joins Medics Money, uh, as everybody knows, we only accept independent financial advisors that specialize in doctors. And obviously we check them out very, very thoroughly. And we were checking you out very, very thoroughly and pleased to say that you passed. But you did send us an interesting document from a doctor, a GP, I recall, who had an annual allowance charge of £4,085. And you noticed that, or Mushtaq noticed, that his previous advisor had not applied the carry forward properly. So is it too early in the podcast to get really technical? Or could you just give us a high level summary of that? Because basically, this client was with another advisor, that advisor said the tax charge is four grand. Well, and then they came to you and you said, actually, great news, tax charge is zero. So tell us about that. Yeah. So when you look at it in the round, it's very simple. But the I think the previous advisor was just doing an annual calculation as an individual calculation, not looking forward or backwards at anything. And this particular doctor had got unused allowances from the previous two out of the last three years that could have been carried forward to offset against this year's pension contributions to reduce that bill. So to me, you don't need to be a specialist to understand that there are carry forwards. This is basic pensions knowledge. But and I was going to say, to be fair, I think the complexity that sits around pensions these days is such that unless you take a little bit of time out to sit back and just think about the problem at hand, if someone comes at you at the very end of a tax year, along with everybody else and say, can you just calculate my tax? You're going to go through a fairly automated process and you may skip some of those. I don't know about you. I just need to, I personally need time to go away and just think about things and say, are we looking at this correctly? What else can we be doing? And that's, I think, the benefit that Mushtaq had is he looked at that case as an individual case and could say, yeah, there's something wrong here. Yeah, I think it's not a judgment on non-specialists as such, and it's more a reflection of just how complex it's all become. And that's why you need somebody who does this day in, day out for many, many years, because it takes a long time to build up that skill. And again, there's no agreed definition of what a specialist NHS pensions advisor is. We've made our own definition. We're pretty happy with our definition. And yeah, it was good to see all those due diligence paperwork and all the other stuff that we did. Let's move on from pensions because I don't want to talk about it. You don't want to talk about it either. But I think it's important to go through it, you know, just to show the complexity. But if there was one area that you think needs focus from in terms of financial planning for doctors, what would that be? I think it doesn't matter what your profession is. And this is where I'm going to say that you don't necessarily have to be a specialist. I think everybody in throughout their, throughout their entire life goes through three stages of life. You've got that period when you're exchanging human capital. You know, you're building up knowledge and creating that human capital. And doctors and people in the legal profession perhaps spend a lot longer building up that human capital than perhaps many other people. But there comes a point in their working life when you're exchanging that human capital or potential, as we used to call it in my day, and you're exchanging all that potential that you've created into hard-earned cash. And it's what you do with that cash in that accumulation period to then help you in that final third of your life. You know, that could be 20, 25 years where you're relying on all of that exchange from potential into money into the thing that's going to secure your income. And I think the earlier that you can, as an individual, get an understanding of what each of those stages in life look like and mean for you financially, the better positioned you're going to be. And you're not going to be at a stage in your life, maybe you're getting into your late 50s, when you're beginning to think, 
retirement's coming up and I have no idea whether I'm on track. So then you start making decisions that may not be in your best interests because you're perhaps panicking. So for me, I think it's getting a decent plan together as early as you can and reviewing that plan on a regular basis and saying, I know exactly what my objectives are and that's what I'm aiming for. Yeah, definitely. You don't want to get to the age of 55 and have done no planning whatsoever and think, I want to retire and suddenly find out that actually you can't retire. So yeah, starting early, definitely a good tip. And I like that the three stages of, you know, building up your knowledge and your human capital, then converting that into income and accumulation phase. And then are we saying deaccumulation at the final stage? I hesitated to use the word accumulation. It's standard in our industry, but I don't know. it's not a pleasant word. I think it sounds quite good. You're basically just spending everything and that's not advice, but I've been reading a book called How to Die with Nothing. I'm not sure if you've read it, but it's interesting perspective, basically saying, well, the title gives it away, but okay. So you've talked a bit about a financial plan there and obviously, you know, anybody can make themselves a financial plan, but from a financial planner's perspective, how does the process work? Like if I came to you today and said, I'm a 40 year old GP, make me a financial plan. What happens next? I don't think it's a one-off process. It can be, but if you're coming up with any plan, you really want to be clear on what the objectives are. Now, I've got a military background, so you know what the objective is. We want to go and take out that enemy there, or we're going to go on a patrol and we're going to want to observe the enemy there. I suppose we're planning for that final third of our lives is, what does retirement look like to me? What is it going to look like when I no longer have the will or ability to create new money? I'm now living off my existing. Until you've got that defined, the plan is, whatever plan you create is going to be a little bit, it's like a charcoal drawing. It's not a fine detail thing. And I, in my work with people, I've been doing this for 35 years. My work with people is that people are very unsure what retirement is going to look like or that final phase. So, but you have to put a line in the sand. And I think that's the first part of financial planning to say, okay, if you can't tell me exactly what it looks like, and I've got some tools that I can use, like describe the perfect day. If you had to live the same day over and over again, what would it look like? What would it cost? But to be able to put a number on what that looks like and then work backwards from that. So you may say to secure the lifestyle that I want over a period of time might need five million pound in assets that we draw down on. From where I am today, and you might be 40, what do my assets look like today? What does my state pension scheme look like? What does its notional value? What does my NHS pension scheme look like? Any other saves and investments? And if I then draw a line between the 5 million and where I am today, with some assumed growth rates, inflation rates, rates about saving, am I going to be on track or not? And invariably, most people aren't. So then the first thing you've got to do is then start looking at the assets you've got today and can they be utilised better? or some of the assumptions that you're using. So most people, when they come to talk to me, will have a three to four year time span that they want to tie up their money for, which is a ridiculous thing because that money is probably gonna be working to you from age 60 to age 90, 30 year period. You're not going to be taking it out in three to five years. It's there and it's invested. So if we can change people's perspectives through using a plan, about how long their money has got to be working for them, that's a good stage of the process. And at no point in that initial discussion, which is about cash flow, essentially, what's coming in and what's going out and when, but at no point are we really talking about 
should I be buying Microsoft or should I be buying Tesla? It's not an investment question because, and I'll touch on that now, I think, most of the research that I have ever looked at will prove to me that investment managers cannot consistently beat the market. So the decision about what to invest in actually is the last thing you think about, and it's a very easy one, buy low-cost tracker funds. We've generally got an idea what the market will do over a long-term period. We don't have an idea what it's going to do over a short-term period. But if you're planning for a 30-year retirement, for example, and you're planning to draw down on that from about age 60, we know how much that we ought to be able to deliver in an index-linked environment over time. So it's getting the cash flow and understanding how the money flows and how much money needs to be there. The investment question is incredibly easy. But everyone gets bogged down with an investment question when they go to see an advisor. Yeah, I think people expect, sometimes might expect you to be sort of wearing red braces, reading the Financial Times and shouting buy and sell. And actually, as you just said, that's not really anything to do with it. And you sort of subtly opened a small can of worms. Well, it's not a can of worms as far as I'm concerned. And it sounds not like for you. But for those that are not aware, you said, you know, active investment managers cannot outperform the market over time. And therefore, you favor passive low cost investment. Can you just give us a simple explanation of that for people that might not be aware of this? Because it's a pretty major point. And it is maybe a little bit contentious within your industry. It is, because if you think about how people are paid in our industry, you are generally, I think, members of the public think that we would have an inside edge on where to place money. Well, the latest piece of research that I've looked at, and some professors, I think, from the West of England said that they had identified that about 1% of professional money managers had been able to display some expertise in getting slightly better than risk-adjusted returns. But the charges that they applied wiped out that return. So essentially, there are no long-term active managers. These are the people that are saying, let's just not trust the market. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to decide whether BP is better than Shell, whether Tesla is better than Microsoft, whether we should be in Japan versus China versus Indonesia, wherever it is. People who are making active and conscious decisions and probably buying and selling within that fund with a high degree of frequency. That type of manager will spend your money for you or lose you money. The institutions since about the 60s, a large part of institutional money has essentially been tracking indices. Now there's a skill that says which indices should we be tracking? And again, there's a little bit of a myth that thinks that that's a large part of the problem, but actually as a company, we essentially follow the money and we just buy index trackers that replicate global money. So 50% of our clients' money would be in the States, about 4% in the UK, 15% across Europe, 8% in Japan. And we'll do that with a mixture of equities, which are shares in companies and bonds, things like government debt. And keep it really simple. I'm not charging anybody really any money for managing their money. I'm not a wealth manager. What I'm charging them is to get the strategy right about whether you should be investing it or whether you should be spending it. Because there are those stages in life as well. I think as you identified earlier, if you've got a pension fund, if you've got savings that are doing really, really well, wouldn't you like an advisor to say, the markets have delivered a great return. You should be spending more rather than getting onto your deathbed and finding out just how much you've left on the table and thinking, if only I had. 
spent that money on the world cruise and I was able. Yeah, definitely. Uh, only here once. And if you can afford it, then go for it. Okay. That was a great explanation of active versus passive. But to summarize, active managers are highly paid fund managers who, as you said, try to guess essentially because no one can predict the future what shares are going to perform better and therefore buy those ones and not others and maybe you might think that makes a lot of sense and that would be the best way but actually there's increasingly large amounts of evidence that say that nobody can predict the future and after the charges that these active managers charge you're better off just putting it in a, what you call a passive tracker, which is a low cost, well diversified, I mean, globally diversified, as you said, you know, got uh, spread all around and essentially try not to touch the dial, don't trade or anything like that. Is that a fair summary? It is a fair summary. And the story I give to anyone who joins me as a client knew that I had a client once who was a member of the Monetary Policy Committee. And I'm going to paraphrase this a bit, but we would sit down and have some regular conversations and he explained to me the process. We sit down once a month in the rooms at the Bank of England and we listen to economists from within government, various agencies and from the banks. And he said they would have these presentations about why the things they were saying last month or six months ago haven't quite panned out the way they explained. And then the next part of the presentation, but we're pretty confident this is what it's going to happen in the future. He said after about two years on the committee, I realised that they didn't know what they were talking about. And whilst there might have been a consensus that things were going good or bad, nobody knew. So he said at that point, and this was back in the early 2000s, and I was at that point pretty disillusioned with active managers and looking at Vanguard, for example, to use one company, were just about coming into the UK at that time, looking at passive funds, index trackers, as a way forward for my clients. And he just nailed it for me. He said, Dennis, I want you to go out there and find me passive strategies because I've been working with the best of the field for a couple of years now, and they really don't know what they're talking about. But they're very convincing. Yeah, it's a bit worrying, but I think it just outlines that even experts can't predict the future. And if you are sat there as a doctor thinking you're going to start trading stocks and shares and make a million pounds by Friday, it's incredibly unlikely, especially as the experts can't do that either. And once you realize in investing that nobody can predict the future and that if you can just capture the returns of the market by using a passive index tracker over the long term you're going to deliver on your goals and you're not going to get distracted by buying and selling unnecessarily which don't forget costs a lot of money to buy and sell things and trading shares and getting onto the latest meme stocks or other fads in investing you just got to try and tune out ignore the noise stick to the plan and that is where you come in by helping us to stick to the plan? Yeah, I think so. I like to tell people they pay me handsomely for doing very little. We don't trade. We don't get onto the phone to our clients every month saying, I think you should be buying this now or I want to get out of why. It's stick to the plan and be that reassuring sounding board. It's cheaper in the long run. That's the only guarantee you've got really is all the only control that you've got is how much it's going to cost you. There's nothing else. You can't control taxes. You can't control inflation. You can't control markets, people's mood, nothing. What you can control is how much you're going to be paying out in fees. Yeah. And when the market's going up, I think, you know, your job is 
I'm not going to say easy, but easier because everything's going well and everything's rosy. But at the moment, the market is going down. And that, in my experience, is where you kind of earn your money. So I imagine you've had a few clients phoning up recently, maybe in a bit of a panic portfolios dropped a bit. That's normal. That's natural. That happens in the market. It's the price you pay for those inflation busting returns in the long term. But what do you what, what do you say to people when they phone up in a, a down market like now and give us your soothing words of calm? Because we're getting quite a few emails about this at the moment. And I just say it's normal. It's natural. Stick to the plan. You know, it's part of investing. But what do you say? You've answered it there. It goes right back to the initial financial planning. If you've got all of the assumptions right and you created this long-term cash flow model, and then you build into that the what-ifs. What if the market crashed the day before I retired by 30% and never recovered? It didn't bounce back like it did in 2000. We just got onto the, that was our new starting point. Will I still be okay? So we do that exercise with everybody because that's a very realistic you know, potential fall, 30, 40%, it can happen. If people know that, it doesn't make it any less comfortable to live through. Nobody likes to see that paper gain, you know, there's a million pound of paper, suddenly worth 700,000. That's a bitter pill to swallow. But if you know you're going to be okay, it's easier. And it's having that knowledge. And I go right back to that military training is that you know, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. In this case, the enemy could be market falls, but no plan survives first contact with the enemy. But all good planning says, but in this event, we're going to do X or Y or Z. So if we're going towards enemy contact and we're ambushed, we know what we're going to do. We're going to sweep right and we're all going to regroup somewhere else. No panic. Yeah, I think that's the key to avoiding you know, I mean, selling in a panic is to have a solid plan. And that's essentially what you give people. So yeah. All right. Brilliant. That was a great summary of a whirlwind of financial planning. Any parting words of wisdom or maybe one tip that you would give doctors to sort of improve their financial health? I think it's to devote more than 1,000th of a working day per year to, to get the financial planning done. Most people will spend more time planning their annual holiday than they will the biggest holiday they're ever going to have in their life, which is retirement. Yeah, I think that's right. Doctors are super busy people, but hopefully things like this podcast make it easy for doctors to learn as they commute or as they work out in the gym or whatever they're doing. So thank you so much for that, Dennis. That was really great. I'll put your links below and really great to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, well, anytime, if we can add something, it'll be really nice to get into the psychology of money at some point, which is a personal interest. Yeah, I'm really keen to do that because I think a lot of the time it's underestimated just how much psychology there is in investing and managing your money and how your previous money experiences affect your outlook on things. So let's pencil that one in because I'm definitely interested in that. Yeah, all dysfunctional around money, myself included. Yeah, 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 me definitely. Got plenty of financial war wounds to show for it. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Dennis, and look forward to catching up again with a psychology of money session. Thanks, Tommy. Thank you.